Okay, you, you're listening to Missing Bits, the podcast in conjunction with Limbs for Life, talking about talking to amputees about amputations and everything about them. And today we welcome Shane Grant. Shane's 49, lives and works in Darwin. He's a registered nurse and a peer support volunteer with Limbs for Life and is in a serious relationship with a wooden reindeer named Cyril. Hi, Shane. Welcome and thanks so much for your time. Tell me about Cyril. Uh, how's it going, mate? Um, yeah, Cyril. So I, I couldn't have a uh, I couldn't have a pet where I'm living. Um, so some clever people last Christmas um, they created these uh, um, wooden designs for for the office, uh, a Christmas theme, and a part of that was getting um, offcuts of of wood um, out in the country and making all sorts of um, Christmassy type things out of it. And what what one of the range of things were were these um, reindeers about the size of, I don't know, a Great Dane and uh, uh, made out of um, logs of wood and offcuts. So um, they gave me one of them. So I took it home and called it Cyril. So that's that's my pet. So Cyril's out the back and I see Cyril, you know, quite often every morning, every evening. I, I have a chat with Cyril. Excellent. Um, Tiffany doesn't eat much. No, he doesn't eat much, but he moves, um, surprisingly. I'm not sure. I, for a while there, I thought somebody was coming into the side yard and actually repositioning him, maybe one of the neighbours. They all claim that they're not touching him, but he does move <laughs> from time to time. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure how he does that. I might have to, I might have to video there, I, think. <laughs> I, sh- I should let everyone know now that the last time um, Shane and I had a proper chat was at a rugby game in Melbourne between Melbourne Storm and St George. Uh, two days after that, it was revealed that Melbourne had cheated the salary captain. The proverbial hit the fan, and I'm hoping today's chat is drama-free. So, where did you grow up, mate? Oh my gosh! Um, so, I, how dare you bring that up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> go, go the storm! I was really disappointed on the weekend too because they just got pit for the minor premiers by yeah. a couple of percentage points. Anyway, um, I grew up in central Victoria um, in a town called Bendigo. Um, I lived there for about the first 10 years of my life and then my parents moved out um, into the country, so to speak, about 20 kilometres out of Bendigo in a town called Strathfield, say. So that's probably where I mostly grew up. Nice part of the world. Yeah, yeah, not, not too bad. Near Lake Epiloth, you know, for those Victorians who know that part of the world. Very good. I grew up um, swimming and carrying on boating, fishing in Lake Epiloth, so it was, it was great. That sounds a lot of fun. That's in the Golden Triangle, isn't it? Yeah, yep, it is. Um, it is. Uh, that's that's Ballarat, isn't it? Bendigo, yep. Ballarat, Ballarat and Toowong. Uh, yeah. So there was um, yourself, your mum, your dad. Who else was around? Ah, uh, brother. Yeah, I've got a younger brother. He's about 18 months younger than me, Jason, um, who's living in Scotland at the moment. And... Uh, you yeah, to, um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You go. No, you go. <laughs> so, growing up, you went to school out that way? Um, yeah, no, we we went to school in, in Bendigo, so we either rode our pushies, which we did mostly, um, or caught the bus. Um, every now and then we get thrown off the country buses, so we'd have to ride our bikes. But, yeah, so we went to school in Bendigo to uh, what's called Flory Hill High School. I think it's still called that now. And then Bendigo High, and uh, and then off to uni. 
So I've got to ask now why you got thrown off the school bus. Oh, wow. We get thrown off for all sorts of stuff. Um, everything, you you name it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't just us. We'd have quite a little riding community um, where we'd have to push bike to school and back, which was, you know, probably a 30, 40k round trip and not on the kind of bikes that we got today either. So yeah. it was it was hard yak of it, mostly for not doing the right thing, of course, or uh, acting up on the buses, not sitting in our seats, throwing shit out the windows. Whoops, I just swore. I shouldn't have done that. That's just right. your typical country lad stuff, I suppose. So what, what kind of student were you? Um, geez. Um, my reports all probably said the same thing. Had uh, had lots of potential and used none of it. Although I did use a lot of my potential, but for things that weren't really uh, didn't achieve the accolades of academia. So and they weren't the things that the schools were looking for. Um, so yeah, generally um, yeah has has lots of potential. Just doesn't want to use it. Was <laughs> pretty much the theme of school for me um, until I. Uh, until I nicked off to uni and then just had a complete epiphany and changed my mind <laughs> sure. and started working. So Bendigo's a pretty big um, Aussie rules area because that was um, back when I was a kid, that was Carlton's recruiting zone. Um, so there was plenty of sport. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was footy. So I played junior football um, for South Bendigo. And you're right, Carlton at the time, then it was the zones and... That's right. Bendigo was zoned to Carlton, and uh, and I hated Carlton um, <laughs> almost as much as Collingwood. So um, I remember even being as a junior thinking, you know, what have I got to look forward here? Like, if I did me good, um, which I wasn't a great footballer, i got to say, if I'd done me good, um, I could only ever hope to play for Carlton, whom I can't stand. So I always had a bit of a thing for rugby, though. And, uh, and of course, that was not developed in rural Victoria sure. at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I got into rugby in, in a bit later on in the 90s. Um, but I always, I always liked watching it on TV. If I could sit up late enough to watch that one game on a Saturday night at 11.30 at night. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, um, the ABC used to televise the rugby live on a Saturday afternoon. That's Did they? Yeah, that's how I got into rugby. I did not know that. Um, oh, I didn't know it then. Um, I really did like rugby, and we used to do a little bit of uh, rugby training for football as well, but not surprisingly, <clears throat> nobody uttered a word about any other code of football other than AFL in, in Victoria, particularly rural Victoria. So football and, and netball, that was, that was it. I'm going. I'm going back away. That's that's in the um, the middle of the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I probably started playing football in the late 70s. Yeah, would have been when I was. I think I was about nine or ten. Um, so yeah, but I mean, uh, football, cricket, and and netball to a lesser degree for the fellas. Um, that's all I can ever remember playing at school or. Um, or being involved in um, my brother and my mum and my dad were all racket sports, so uh, I was never very good with a racket. Um, so I used to just do the, the typical Aussie boy in the seventies and eighties: football, football, and cricket. Yeah, 
So you finished up at school, you went off to uni, was that um, in Melbourne? No, I, I didn't immediately go off, off to uni. Um, I coughed up a leg in between time, so I had a bit of a... I had a hiatus. There was a uh, <laughs> there was a, a, a a bit of a change in the momentum in the late eighties. So once I had all that done and had recovered, then I went off to uni. So it was probably that probably took about three years for that stuff to sort itself out before I um, hobbled off and went to uni for the first time. And then you so got I was a couple of years older than yeah, yeah. Yep. So then you got into nursing straight away, or was it? Something that you grew into? No, oh, well, I think, uh, no, I had no intentions of being a nurse. Um, you know, when I was 17, 18, um, I thought I'd just wind up, um, or not to say just, I thought I'd be a tradie like my dad and uh, most of the men in my family. Um, but uh, things didn't play out that way. And, uh, and of course, you know, um, having to hand over. You know, a bit over half of your leg kind of changes your ideas about what you need to do and what you can do. Uh, plus, back in those days, um, because of the nature of the way I lost my leg, meant that I had to spend a bit over 12 months um, at the children's hospital um, having uh, chemotherapy. So, and that was away from home because that was all done in Melbourne. So the nurses. <clears throat> that were looking after me, um, a lot of them lived across the road from the hospital, from the children's in Flemington Road. And uh, and they used to take me over there on the weekends. And I used to hang out with them. So I think my exposure to health and more specifically to nurses um, was just elevated to such a point that um, when it came time to choosing a, a career to move on, um, that it became natural then. Yep. But I certainly didn't grow up wanting to be one. Yep, so you it lost, changed. You lost your leg above knee? Yeah, yeah, just above. And the recovery was how was the recovery? It was slow? Uh yeah, it was it was pretty shit out. I mean there was a lot of a lot of chemical therapy, so chemo I suppose most people would um, yep. know it as. Um, you know, there was a lot of chemo before the amputation and then there was a lot of chemo after it. So the chemo itself slows all uh, healing and recovery down as well. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it probably, probably took me the best part of two and a half years to totally, to totally get right. And probably a year of that I would have spent, you know, probably in hospital. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it did. It took a little bit of time, I've got to say. But, I mean, things are a lot different now. This is, we're talking late 80s here, sure. 89, 90, 91. So, you know, things are a lot different now. Yep. And I, I've got to say that um, you know, when, I, when I had my foot removed, I had my foot removed at the Children's Hospital in 1968. So things, even, wow. in, the 80s, even in the 80s, were a lot more advanced than I could imagine. And, and now it's beyond what I can even imagine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're I think they're doing great things at the moment, getting good results, particularly around the type of tumor that I had. Yep. So for those for those out there listening, um, we um, we have a little question air that I send out, um, and people just sort of write things in. 
um, and um, then I look at it and, and I don't know too much about the, the subject itself, but now I've got to ask how dark is it inside a wooden box? <clears throat> so because of that really cryptic questionnaire that you sent me, I thought <laughs> I would um I would <laughs> I thought I would delve into the drill down into the depths of my mind to fulfill that. And uh, and hopefully I wasn't too cryptic that I don't even remember what the hell I was talking about. But with a wooden box, um, I've done quite a bit of travelling um, over the years um, overseas. And one of the things that is always uh, interesting about travelling um, with a with a prosthetic um, or an artificial leg is trying to get through security points. Yes. And generally the first the first ones that hit you in the face are actually trying to enter a country. Um, or trying to uh, move about inside one, particularly by air. And I've had all sorts of experiences um, ranging from uh, very pleasant and and, and uh, couldn't be better right down to what the hell. And uh, and so the wooden box was the what the hell. I was in a, in a little airport in Cambodia and we'd chosen to fly for 45 minutes rather than do 10, 10 hours by road. And in this little airport, when I got there, they um, when I went through the metal detector, um, I always travel wearing shorts so that yep. security can see what they're looking at, and uh, it just saves a lot of trouble. Um, it? Anyway, they uh, it does. They wanted me to, as it turned out, and they were very armed security as well, <laughs> pretty intimidating. Um, it turned out in their broken English. Um, that they wanted me to take the leg off in the airport so they could run it through the X-ray machine, yep. and uh, I didn't. I didn't think that was a really good idea, and I don't think I had the, the items that I would normally use to put my leg back on with me at that moment because I was only expecting to be in the air for an hour. So I think everything went into the check-in luggage. So I said, "No, I'm not taking it off." <clears throat> then they asked me again. And I said, "No." And then on the third time that they asked me and I refused, um, I hadn't noticed, but there was a wooden box um, in the in the area, in the security area, and they grabbed hold of me um, by the arm and marched me, opened up the wooden box and put me in there. Oh, good God. <laughs> there was like this little wooden stool in the centre of this wooden box, and the box I've described, um, Doctor Who's TARDIS, Yes, right. Do, do you know what I'm talking yep. about? Yep. Like a, a, a phone box. It was about the size of a phone box. It was completely dark wood. Um, had no windows or anything, and it had this tiny little like LED light up in the top corner, just basically casting a shadow with a little wooden stool in it. And uh, they put me inside the box, and I I didn't try it, but I suspected I was locked in there. And then they randomly came in every or opened the door every few minutes, demanding me to take my leg off. Wow, what? Um, so that they could put it through. Yeah. Um, long story short, I didn't take my leg off, and I still got the flight. And you didn't get out and and suddenly be in another country. Is that, that no? I, I got to where I was going. They they changed my seat, so instead of sitting somewhere down the back of the plane casually. Um, they changed my seat to the to the front, so I think so that they could keep an eye on me. I'm not sure. Fantastic! I've never heard that yeah. before. Ever that is fantastic. There's never anywhere else in the world it's ever happened to me except Cambodia, and it wasn't in Phnom Penh. It was in uh, Siem Reap. 
Right. Mm. So how did you end up in Darwin? Oh, uh, <laughs> um, I followed a girl up here. I've heard that story before. <laughs> it's quite a common one up here too, I might add. Yeah, I believe it. Has, um, has yeah, the, follow, it's simply followed a girl up here. How does the um, the heat and humidity up in there affect your leg? Uh, initially, it was a struggle, um, but like anything else, you, you acclimatise. And uh, and to be honest, in Darwin, um, although the temperature doesn't get much below uh, mid-30s, early 30s, um, for about six, seven months of the year, so in, in the Victorian winter, it's it's dry season up here, so the humidity is next to nothing, so it's just dry. Yep. So that's not so bad, but at the other half of the year, in the wet season where the humidity sits up in the 80s and 90s, it takes you a couple of seasons to, to get the hang of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it wouldn't take much to sweat a leg off um, up here. You, you just learn to adapt. I guess you'd have to. I, I struggled during what? the I struggled during the, the hot weather in in Melbourne, so I don't know how I'd um, manage in Darwin. Yeah, well, I, I used to struggle a bit in summer in Melbourne as well or Victoria. But I mean, to be honest, the temperature hotter in Victoria in summer than what it is up here. It's just the humidity up here that gives you a sense of it being. Hotter, but yeah, look, it's a problem. It definitely, you know, if you're using liners and silicon liners and things of this nature, um, I definitely had a, I had a lot more problems sweating my leg off when I first got here yep. than what I do now. Fair enough. So I think you just get accustomed. You get accustomed to it. What What's the difference like up there compared to say a major centre like Melbourne for prosthetic care? Oh gosh. Um, Ooh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, I would assume that you would, uh, you probably, um, it wouldn't be dissimilar. It right. would be, um, there certainly, there certainly is a, a prosthetic orthotic service, um, in Darwin. Um, I haven't been to a prosthetic center in Melbourne, um, for you know four or five years, sure. so it's a bit hard to it's a bit hard to compare. But I think I think the comparison would be what any any person would consider the difference between a prosthetic service of multiple agencies for three and a half million people versus one service for two hundred thousand people in the top end of the country remote. Yeah, that's what I, I think they do. A, I think they do. They do a great job um, for the resources that they have. Sure. Uh, so now I have to ask you about Q jumping. All oh, right. Yeah. So um, Q jumping. So another. So another travelling um, tidbit. Um, had tra- had been around. Um, various countries, but um, we went to India a couple of years ago just for the hell of it. Actually, it was for the um, ISPO conference, um, and um, we we did some sightseeing, of course, while we were there. And it turns out that, um, and I wouldn't have naturally 
thought this about India, but if they, uh, at some of their uh, monuments, um, and particularly their more important ones, um, what happened to me was, because uh, it was summer too when we we're in India, but I travel with short, in, I wear shorts mainly anyway. Yeah. Um, a few times I got spotted in the, in the, in the long crowds to get into these places. And, uh, and they had, they had a policy whereby, um, if you were disabled, not only would they come, you know, the, the, the service people for whatever monument or, wherever we were at the time trying to visit tourist attraction, they come and drag me out of the queue, uh, my partner as well, because they could see that I had an artificial leg and I'd queue jump the whole entire queue and I wouldn't have to pay to go in. Oh, that's fantastic. Just because I had a disability. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's never happened anywhere else in the world. But that happened in uh, in Hyderabad in India. Um, so, yeah, they... Uh, very, very mindful, very respectful um, of people, or at least tourists with disabilities. I'm not sure if it extends to the to the uh, to the locals. I would hope it did. But um, and, I, and I, I once saw a sign too um, at one of the places that they queue jumped me, um, which actually in English said that um, you know basically that there was. Um, preferential treatment for people with disabilities to not only enter the facility but for any means that they had while they were in there. And like this was an ancient, you know, um, um, sort of religious um, thing that was that we we're at. So yeah, it was a bit unexpected. So yeah, queue jumping. Um, every every time, I, any other time I've ever tried to queue jump like that, there's always been a lot of a uh, lot of problems, but not in India. <laughs> I was I was over in Paris earlier this year, and the my wife and I were at the Arc de Triomphe, and um, everywhere you go in Paris now, there's there's um, metal detectors, and you get wandered wherever you go. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we walked in, um, I, of course, I've set off the the damn beeper, and they stopped me, and I've, I've it was freezing cold, so I didn't have shorts on, so I've just lifted the leg of my pants, and um, shown them my leg. And um, they sent me up to the top in a service elevator with with my wife, <laughs> with our own guy. That's pretty cool. So we skipped. <laughs> I, don't, I can't even remember how many steps there are up up there, but there's a lot. And uh, my there's wife, quite a few because I had to walk it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went up the service elevator with our own guide. Yeah. Well, you you, you did really well because yeah, when I from it up to the ark, I I had to climb the stairs. <laughs> The elevator stops yep. one floor below the top, so all I had to do was go up one flight of stairs, and I was at the top. Perfect. Yep. Um, you can get lucky. You can sometimes. <laughs> so you don't mind riding a motorbike, I believe? No, I love love riding motorbikes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Motorbikes with cleats love it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a really cool idea because uh, I was in the Northern Territory. It wasn't it wasn't since I've been living here. It was the time I came up here um, to visit my brother and a couple of his mates wanted to go on a bit of a, um, a bit of a fast ride uh, out of town, and, and one of them lent me a, a motorbike that I you know I'd never seen it before, but well, motorbikes motorbike right so. Um, 
I was sitting on about, uh, no, maybe <clears throat> 260. I think I stopped looking at around about 240, 50 kilometers an hour and just started concentrating on what was in front of me. Yeah, and, I'd, uh, I'd, and I'd probably be doing that too. <laughs> and, uh, and a couple of the guys were pulling away, so I was probably at the time a bit more concerned about that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, because you would never ride like that in Victoria. No. Um, those kinds of speeds. Um, the wind must have caught my leg um, just at the wrong moment on the wrong angle, and it ripped my leg off the peg and uh, and basically dragged my body sideways on top of the bike <laughs> while I was doing in excess of a couple of hundred days an hour. Oh. On a bike I didn't know, on a road I'd never seen before, following guys I'd, I'd only just met that day. So it was all kinds of wrong. Like, well, when I look back on it, um, I just think, you know, I'm sure anybody listening thinks you're a complete idiot and you were right back then. And uh, long story short, though, it didn't pull me off the bike, which is surprising, but it did pull my leg off. And the only reason my leg didn't actually come off was because of the pants. It trapped it. Yeah. Um, so I eventually brought the bike to a stop with my leg completely off my stump um, and just totally disheveled and white and shaking. And, and then I thought, rider's cleat. So the cleats that the, that the road riders use on their bushes, yes, that'd be one way to that'd be one way to stop your leg from ever coming off at high speed. Is uh, instead of having a motorcycle boot on my right hand side. Um, I just have a, uh, you know, like a Shimano riding shoe that, you know, road bike rider, pushy riders use with a, with a cleat instead of a peg. That sounds fan- That sounds like it should so, work, but it sounds fantastic at the same time. It works. I've tried it. It works. It's good. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's next for Shane Grant? Where does he go from here? <clears throat> oh, gosh. Um... I don't know. I've just changed jobs, so I'm settled for the moment. I think eventually I'd like to go back to Melbourne, though. Um, I feel like I've, you know, I've experienced all that there is to, or most of the things that there are to offer in the Northern Territory. Um, and I'm gearing up to get more involved in um, in limbs with Mal yep. on the um, on the uh, Australian. Um, Amputee Council, again with Mel, um, and I'm sort of looking at the moment of getting involved in care planning for um, people with disabilities um, for their services and accessing funds um, through the NDIS. So I think I think this is where I'm, I'll wind up. Um, or I think I mean it's what, what I'm sort of working towards now. So. I can't exactly tell you when I'd be free flying in in the um, in the NDIS disability space, but it will be it'll be one day, and it will be um, sooner rather than later. That sounds um, great. So yeah, I'm going to get more active, um, more so around helping other people than myself, um, which is what I did for many years as a nurse. Yep. Um, anyway, so I, yeah, I really miss that. Um, helping other people. Um, but it's not that I don't do that in my current job. It's just I want to play. I want it to be a focus of what I do. Um, 
but yeah, um, so probably back to Melbourne and slight career change into um, into servicing people with disabilities. I think will be the next one. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. So just before we wind up, um, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are listening to it, that are most likely the hundreds, um, might, <laughs> might like to hear from an experienced person such as yourself a, a few words of wisdom. Um, right. Um, so from the from a person with a yeah, sure. with a mobility disability. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, everybody. I think everybody faces a lot of challenges as they move through life and and work hard for for what they want. Um, I think we all we're we're all challenged. We've all got challenges lying about us, whether whether we've got disabilities or we don't. But um, I think for me, the one thing that's just kept pushing me um, and the what I used to, or what I still do, what I fall back on in the in all my years at uni, um, and then I've changed careers uh, probably at least three times now. So I'm about five or six years into the third one. Um, is that, and I truly believe this. I believe that any of us, it doesn't matter whether you have a disability or not, we can we can have and do whatever we like yes. in this world. It's just a question of how badly do you want it. Because I think that if you want something, you want to be something or um, you want to work in a particular area or you want to work with particular people, um, even if you want something material, I suppose, um, I think we're, I think in this country we are able to, to achieve that. It's just a question of how motivated you are to go through the challenges and the hurdles and the steps to do it. And that might... You know, it might be a 10-year plan, it might be a 15-year plan, it might be a 5-year plan. So that's what's always kept me going. It's not it's not what I haven't got. It's it's what I, in terms of um, physical ability, it's what have I got and how can I use it. Um, so I believe that the only limitation in this world for me is me. <laughs> Very well said, Mike. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that's... That's what I believe. So, um, you know, basically, if I'm not happy, that's my fault. <laughs> and if I don't have something that I, I want, then you know, I clearly haven't uh, I haven't done what's needed to achieve that. For sure. Yeah. When you wind so, up up there and you end up in Melbourne, I'm be happy to catch up with you again and go to the rugby sometime and have a beer. Well, absolutely. And I, I come back to Melbourne, you know, once or twice a year. So. I'll sing out, Gary. I usually come back MotoGP time, which is next month. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, the, we might be having that beer uh, a bit sooner than you thought. Sooner rather than later <laughs> is always good with a beer. <laughs> Absolutely. Good Thanks, Victorian mate. I really appreciate too. your time, and it's been great getting to know you a bit better. Um, thank you very much for your, for your time, Gary, and, and for what you're doing. For, uh, for amputees or, or, you know, people with disabilities particularly. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to, to have a chat. Re- really appreciate it. Love really what you're doing. Thank you very much, Gary. See you soon.
Cheers, mate. I was lucky enough to speak to Shane Grant in early September in 2018. Just remember, wherever you're listening to your podcast, whether it be online or on the app of your choice, remember to download, share, like, comment. It really does help 